the response to the coronavirus has exposed all kinds of weaknesses in the United States. Although Trump's leadership has been very poor, it is possible that the same outcome could have happened with almost any other president because there would have been very similar problems around uh, malfunctions with testing and around failure to cooperate between state and federal governments. So the United States as a whole is not looking very good at the moment. I would say from the perspective of the rest of the world, looking at China, China doesn't look that great either. As much as China is trying to take advantage of this at, at the moment, it's always going to be the country that was the source of the outbreak, the country that misled and obfuscated at the beginning of the outbreak, regardless of what el whatever else it does after that, it is always going to have that stigma. So I, I really don't think that either country has, has come out on top. Although one interesting thing that we've observed is how similar the two countries' rhetoric about each other really is. And um, looking at that from another country, it is like watching two kids in a schoolyard. It is a really, really unedifying sight to think that these are the two most powerful countries on earth. Hello and welcome to everybody to this Sydney Ideas conversation. My name is Bill Bertels. I'm the ABC's China correspondent up here in Beijing. Today we have a rather timely discussion. Uh, I'm joined by three experts who bring a lot of experience and uh, a lot of interesting perspectives to this massive issue, China, the United States, the rivalry and where Australia fits into it. Um, I have uh, Jing, uh, Associate Professor Jing Dong Yuan, a specialist in Asia Pacific security, Chinese defense and foreign policy. We also have Dr. David Smith, a United States expert with a focus on US political relations. He'll no doubt be having a lot to say given what's been going on in the US over the past few days. And we have Dr. Minglu Chen, a lecturer in government relations and a China specialist. Obviously, 2020 has, has already kicked off with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we have in the past week, uh, Chinese government announcing new national security laws for Hong Kong. And now in the past few days, we have massive unrest in the United States. Clearly, the relationship between the two biggest powers is not getting any better and it's not going to stabilise anytime soon. So I'd like to start, uh, I suppose, with Dr. David Smith, because the US is what everyone is talking about at the moment. The past few days, what we've seen uh, obviously started with the death of that African-American man, George Floyd. But I, I just want your thoughts on whether or not the anger and uh, the, the scenes we've seen across American cities is broader than that. Uh, what, what do you think is at the heart of so much discontent in America? And what does this mean for, the, uh, for, for Donald Trump? Yeah, so the death of George Floyd and the continuing problem of police brutality that happens with impunity in the United States, that is the major issue behind all of this. But it certainly takes place against a backdrop of much broader frustration with 40 million unemployed in the United States, with a really frustrating few weeks of lockdown, which despite that, the United States still has 
far more deaths and infections than any country in the world. And I think that what we're seeing, particularly over the last few days, is just a total breakdown of authority. Tonight, or today, our time, Donald Trump invoked an 1807 law allowing him to use the military in the District of Columbia to clear protesters, which he did in order to go and do a photo op in front of a church holding a Bible. Now, this is not a sign of strength from Trump. Those of my colleagues who study authoritarian regimes know that when you're resorting to using the military, that is actually a sign of weakness. That's a sign that you have lost control. And the Trump presidency was the culmination of decades of increasing partisan polarization in the United States. Half of the country has never really accepted Trump as a legitimate presidential figure. He didn't win with a plurality of votes in, in the election. So his authority has always been very, very weak. So there's this enormous confluence of frustration over the worst pandemic in at least 50 years, probably in 100 years, this continuing unresolved problem of uh, police brutality in America, and just uh, levels of trust in the United States government that are somehow even lower than they were before. Minglu Chen, what do you think Xi Jinping and the leaders of China, the mainly older men who run China, uh, but also, you know, the 200 or so in the Politburo below them. These are people who have spent decades immersed in Marxist, uh, Chinese, uh, so Marxist sort of socialism with Chinese characteristics ideology. Uh, there's always a bit of a debate about how much they actually believe all this sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, I'd be keen to throw that question to you. But what do you think they make of it when they see these, signs, these, these scenes in the United States? Mm, I think probably for them, this is an opportunity to, again, demonstrate the superiority of the socialist system in China. Um, that actually explains a lot of what people see as more and more offensive behavior of the Chinese authority. Um, as to the riots in Hong Kong and the enaction of the security law, um, I think with this issue, it has a um, much profound history behind it because the security law is not something which came up all of a sudden over the past week or so. It has been an uh, issue under discussion for almost 20 years. I don't know whether people remember this, but in 2003, there had been a large scale demonstration of the Hong Kong people who took it to the street because they were not happy with a version, a draft of the security law drafted by the local legislative of Hong Kong. Um, I guess I see the central government in China kind of losing their patience over this long wait. So that's what's happening on their side. I might bring in Jing Dong Yan here because um, for the best part of the last year, or certainly in the second half of last year when Hong Kong kicked off, 
you had the US quite reluctantly at first to, to get involved, to, to sort of publicly criticize. Trump himself actually held back a lot. Uh, but eventually, the uh, push for the uh, Hong Kong uh, law in which the US would uh, threaten to withdraw its special recognition of Hong Kong's autonomy, eventually that got up in the US, Trump approved it. And now we have Mike Pompeo just last week, uh, I think it was last week, coming out and saying, oh, look, we no longer recognize Hong Kong as autonomous. And so uh, the, the US will start taking actions. Um, uh, Professor Yuan, I'm kind of one wondering so far from what the Trump administration has announced, do you think China would be worried at all about concrete US actions regarding Hong Kong? And just the second part of the question, given the chaos in the US, do you think that weakens the American ability to do anything about Hong Kong? Well, I think uh, if you, uh, if the Chinese have been watching uh, what Trump has been saying and, and doing over the last three and a half years. Uh, so there's always a, a gap between the uh, very strong and sometimes uh, very strange rhetoric and actual uh, actions. And uh, I think when the Chinese observe the early days, the Trump administration, uh, especially Trump himself, threatening to closing the borders, uh, expelling uh, illicit, you know, illegal immigrants, uh, and then American court system intervened. So there's the American system of the balances and checks and uh, pretty much can put something uh, constrained on uh, what uh, President Trump's uh, saying. At the same time, I think over the last few months, uh, of course, uh, you see a, a steady uh, escalation of both uh, rhetorics, and then probably movement towards some concrete, although very still uh, not very well defined and quite limited uh, actions. For instance, uh, the American government is indicating or hinting uh, that it's going to screen and, and uh, probably well cancel the visas of about 3,000 Chinese students. <clears throat> who have uh, connections with the uh, uh, Chinese military uh, academic institutions. And to what extent that will and can be uh, implemented uh, remains a question. So at the moment, I think the Chinese government is just responding in raising the voices. You see the, uh, with regard to the US uh, comments and uh, Pompeii's uh, threat to cut off Hong Kong special treatment. Uh, you've seen three Chinese uh, sort of authorit authoritative voices from the Hong Kong uh, Affairs Office, from uh, the office in Hong Kong, and from uh, People's Daily. So they basically, uh, in various ways, reject uh, the American uh, sort of uh, comments and also hinted China's reactions and uh, perhaps their own punitive measures, countermeasures uh, against Trump. Now, I want to throw it back to coronavirus um, because it's almost been forgotten in the past week or two, given what else has been going on. And, um, you know, journalists, we do love grand narratives and broad sweeping storylines. And so I'm going to throw out one to uh, David Smith. Coronavirus, has China come out on top compared to the US in the general response to it? As in which country has come out 
better? Has China won? That's a very difficult question. And I don't think that either of them have come out of this particularly well. I think that we're going to need more time to be able to tell who ends up on top eventually. If, if either of them end up on, on top, I would be completely uh, prepared to say that the situation is they're both losers at the moment. Certainly the US hasn't really managed to elevate itself above China in any way. The response to the coronavirus has exposed all kinds of weaknesses in the United States. Although Trump's leadership has been very poor, it is possible that the same outcome could have happened with almost any other president because there would have been very similar problems around uh, malfunctions with testing and around failure to cooperate between state and federal governments. So the United States as a whole is not looking very good at the moment. I would say from the perspective of the rest of the world, looking at China, China doesn't look that great either. As much as China is trying to take advantage of this at, at the moment, it's always going to be the country that was the source of the outbreak, the country that misled and obfuscated at the beginning of the outbreak, regardless of what el whatever else it does after that, it is always going to have that stigma. So I, I really don't think that either country has, has come out on top. Although one interesting thing that we've observed is how similar the two countries' rhetoric about each other really is. And um, looking at that from another country, it is like watching two kids in a schoolyard. It is a really, really unedifying sight to think that these are the two most powerful countries on earth. Yeah, Ming Lu Chen, you've, you've been monitoring the Chinese domestic discussion about coronavirus over these past few months about the US. Um, let, let's not forget that if you go back to late January when all this was kicking off, there were Western media articles with people saying, is this Xi Jinping's Chernobyl moment? Is this China's Chernobyl moment? And now no one's talking like that anymore. Um, can you kind of give your thoughts on how the domestic narrative is running here in China about both China's coronavirus response, but also what the US and, and other countries overseas have been doing? I was actually in China um, in the beginning of this year. So I kind of witnessed the whole thing coming up. I think at the beginning, there has been a lot of frustration among the Chinese people, which you actually see if you are a Weibo user that um, commonly shared feelings of frustration is very strong on Weibo. Um, that kind of indicates, as I agree with every single word that David was saying just now, I don't think China was doing um, well in any of this, particularly in the early stage. Um, the covering up at the beginning, um, uh, the belated um, measures that the local and the central government was doing, and for some stage there had been a lot of local competition, and each provincial government was kind of each for their own, and eventually the central government came in to intervene. Right. But this is a pattern, as a China scholar, we have seen with many issues, many 
um, similar incidents, right? There has always been this kind of central local dynamic, right? Uh, if a incident happens, it probably would get worse and worse, but before it gets out of hand, the central government would intervene, right? Then eventually the problem would be solved and it eventually the rhetoric among the Chinese people have changed because this kind of um, uh, measures don't really tarnish the reputation of the central authority right? because it, when it came to intervene, everything was kind of put back to track. But with China, I would say the challenge is still not over despite what China and the Chinese people might think because we really start to see the impact of the virus outbreak now on the Chinese economy. Well, yeah, well, you're saying about the Chinese economy. Um, over here, it's, uh, well, it seems to be in some ways a few steps ahead of where Australia's at, but in other ways, um, perhaps not. And I suppose you might be referring to the factories and the exporters who are really copying it now. So last week, um, one of the most important political events in China just took place, right? That was the meeting of the two sessions, the People's Congress and the People's Political Consultative Conference. Um, during this meeting, it was quite surprising, right? Normally, this is the occasion when the Chinese government set its goal for the coming year, the economic goal for the coming year, but this time it didn't do so. And it was for the first time in actually about two decades that the Chinese economy had a contraction. So that's really not looking very good at all. And I think the harder days are still yet to come. We had a few pre-event questions. Um, a question I get a lot over here about coronavirus is, do we know the true death rate as opposed to what the authorities here in China are telling us. Um, let's say Jing Dong Yuan, do, do you have a perspective on the death rate, why it is so much lower in China than the US and Europe, and whether or not the figures can be trusted here? Well, I think there are maybe two uh, issues here. One is uh, obviously uh, what people are suspecting the uh, whether this is a true figure or, or not. And certainly, uh, people have various reason to believe that that is not true because especially when China uh, was the origin of, of this uh, pandemic uh, outbreak. Uh, so that's one. So, but for the true numbers to come out, you need to have, uh, you know, you need to do a number of things. And, uh, but I don't know if the, if the government is uh, willing to allow that to happen. But secondly, I think also uh, the reason that the number has not been extremely high could be that after late January, when the central government just introduced uh, draconian measures to uh, have an entire city uh, locked down and then mobilize, I think uh, what the central government like China uh, can do is to mobilize resources from other provinces, uh, municipalities, to send in thousands, tens of thousands of medical personnel and uh, the medical uh, equipment to Wuhan and set up uh, you know, temporary hospitals, quarantine people, 
And some of the measures uh, you can't imagine uh, that can be implemented elsewhere in, in the world. But the Chinese government, various levels of government, down to the neighborhood watch group, like uh, uh, resident committee. And so they all enforce a strong, very strict quarantine. So that may help uh, prevent the, uh, the spread of the, of the disease and therefore keep, uh, you know, help keep the, the death rate from escalating. Uh, so here you, you, you get a contract, certainly in the U.S. I mean, it's difficult to impose that kind of, uh, of control. And then even, you know, a couple of months uh, after what had happened in China, I mean, Trump was really of two minds, whether the economy should be the first priority or should the U.S. impose. And how to impose, because as a federal system, and states have their own authority, quite different, yeah. Just cut out for a moment. Um, I'm going to take a, another pre-event question. I'll throw this one to David Smith. What role does the US play in a post-COVID world? It has up until now acted as if it existed in a bubble controlled by realist theory. However, the rest of the world, including China, has been playing by institutional principles, such as international organizations like the WHO. So basically getting at, you know, we saw Trump this week or last week say, look, we're cutting all ties with the WHO. Uh, he's not a big fan of the WTO either. I think the first thing to keep in mind is there's always a certain degree of instrumental use of international institutions by the major powers. One of the reasons why, for most of the time after World War II, the United States was uh, very much playing by institutional rules is because the United States wrote those rules and, uh, and those rules really worked for the US. One of Trump's major messages in the 2016 election campaign was that it's just not working anymore for America. And now all of these other countries are taking advantage of America through the institutional rules of the game. Whether he was right about that or not is a different question, but it certainly resonated with people. And in fact, by the time of the, the election, basically every candidate had said the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a bad idea, uh, current trade deals that we've got are bad. So, there, you know, he had a lot of popular momentum behind this. Now, whether this actually means that the United States is going to withdraw from these institutions in an irreversible way, I think is an open question. So it's entirely possible that if Joe Biden gets elected president, then the United States will reinvest in some of these institutions, possibly. But I think that it is also the case that a lot of the, the whole world's institutional framework of cooperation, things like the World Trade Organization, even the United Nations, I mean, this, these all reflect that immediate post-war order in which American power was so unchallenged and there was such a big gap between the US and its other political and economic rivals, and that world has fundamentally changed. The US can't just dominate the world in the way that it used to. And that's going to be the new context that uh, the United States, it might be able to work with these institutions, but it won't be able to dominate them in, in the way that it used to. So whatever world we're heading towards, I don't know if the US will reinvest uh, after Trump's gone, if Trump goes in, in 2020, but I think it is going to look different from how it looked before. 
David, I just want to add one question there. Let's bring it to Australia. The yeah. idea that the US has Australia's back. Uh, do you think that is something Australia can count on, not just in the Trump era, but in the years ahead? I think that this, in some ways, is something that we try not to think about very much. And I think that in many ways, the view in Australia is not just that we have the US security umbrella, but really that we're far enough out of the way that it's never going to be used. I mean, this is Kind of, this is very much New Zealand's view that, well, we're not, we're just not going to get into a military entanglement that is actually going to require us uh, to, to need powerful allies. And I think that the thinking is often the same in Australia, that we don't seriously think Australia is on its own going to get into some kind of military conflict with uh, China or Indonesia. So, we like to think theoretically the US has our back, but on the other hand, we also think we're probably never going to use it. And because of that kind of ambiguity, I think that Australian governments will shelve this as a theoretical question, thinking about, okay, maybe we wouldn't actually be able to rely on the US having our back when it counted. Maybe the kind of mood that put Trump into power is would act as a constraint on an American president acting to help Australia. But because we think it's such a remote possibility that Australia would actually need that help of a major ally, we're perhaps content to leave that be as a theoretical question we never really have to think about. I'll move on to another pre-event question. I might throw this one to uh, Minglu Chen. Um, we saw, when was it, two weeks ago, I think, the Chinese government confirmed that it was putting huge tariffs on Australian barley imports. And pretty much the next day, it also confirmed that it would start taking American barley imports for the first time. It looked pretty clear that this was the Chinese government trying to um, fulfil the terms of that phase one trade deal that it did with Trump where China agreed to buy a huge increase in agricultural products in exchange for basically Trump um, alleviating the pressure on market access. Anyway, overnight, we've seen some interesting reporting just to, as an aside that now um, some figures in China are threatening to uh, tear up the phase one trade deal if Trump doesn't uh, stop insulting China at every turn. So uh, that's, that's sort of a, a, an area of complication between the US and China. But on the Australia issue of the barley tariffs, we also saw restrictions on uh, beef exporters. So we're seeing, for the first time, real tangible economic pressure on Australian exports to China, even though they're the minor exports, they're not things like iron ore. So my question I'll throw to Ming Lu is, um, should Australia, or could Australia, will Australia, I suppose, will Australia sacrifice its sovereignty, sovereignty, democracy, and values for the sake of a good economic relationship with China? And if so, to what extent do you think Australia would need to adjust its uh, values in order to uh, economically reap a better relationship with China? Um, I don't think it would be a issue for, a, it's not even a question for Australia to abandon its democratic values in order to please China. But I do see there is already signs of Australia kind of softening is um, China policies. Um, I think recently uh, Scott Morrison just said um, 
Australia would not consider imposing sanctions on Chinese officials for the passing of the Hong Kong security law. I, my personal interpretation is this is one of the ways to kind of show we have now a more um, a softer um, attitude, which probably, um, unfortunately, China does have a lot of leverage, economic leverage over Australia. And this is something Australia will probably face even more. Currently, China has not put any um, sanctions on Australian iron ore, but the fact that the Chinese economy is declining and for the first time right, we see on um, the economic traction which means a lot of factories are not running anymore so naturally the chinese need on um, australian iron ore will decline so this even china does not intentionally do so i think that will be a huge blow on the australian economy so i think australia probably on its side will have to consider how to strike a um, more sustainable balance between its security concerns and its economic interests. Jing Dong Yuan, I just want to throw it to you. Um, what's your view on that? Will Australia have to, well, to balance uh, the relationship with China to the point where Australia can still, you know, make a lot of money selling stuff to China without, um, uh, you know, without sort of having a relationship that uh, puts that at risk? What does that tangibly look like in future years? For example, when, when there are issues in Hong Kong, when there are issues in Xinjiang, uh, when there are various, uh, when there's pressure from the US for Australia to go into bat for Team America in its disputes with China, what would it tangibly look like for politicians and uh, you know, prominent figures in Australia uh, to um, balance that relationship with China to a point where uh, we can still trade significantly with China? Yeah, I think a challenge for uh, Australian government and for politicians on, on both sides of the aisle is, uh, you know, how do you balance uh, economic uh, benefit and your political principles and, and your security uh, concerns? I think one thing that the Australian government can do or can avoid doing is not to be perceived as a, a deputy uh, sheriff for the United States. So you don't have to be you know everything trying to align or even running ahead of the U.S. in, in terms of uh, you know making very public and, and strong criticism of China. But what Australia can do is, as a middle power, uh, you should leverage your diplomatic uh, resources and to uh, mobilize uh, multilateral institutions and to frame a lot of those questions as. Uh, what the region and, you know, for instance, in the Pacific, in terms of security and prosperity, uh, what should be the proper behavior and, and so forth, to be critical of China where it is against the principle of multilateralism and to be equally criti critical of the United States when the U.S. is threatening to withdraw from WTO or, or you know, WHO and, and so forth or to undermine multilateral uh, institutions. But with regard to the uh, potential economic, you know, what China can do is, I think there are some limitations to what China can do in certain areas. And China can do, you know, in terms of importing of, of wines or imposing tariffs on certain products. 
But even with China's economic uh, slowdown, I think at some point with the stimulus package, when everything's back to normal, when China needs to restart economy, it will need those resources. And so, I mean, Australia's iron war will be a very difficult, uh, you know, commodity to part away with. I mean, you can't uh, import uh, iron ore from Brazil or other sources, but that's just very difficult. And some other kind of a trade arrangements all long term, they have a contractual uh, sanctity, even with regard to Chinese students and tourists. I mean, the government cannot say you can't go to uh, Australia to study, you have to go to somewhere, you know, it's up to uh, the students, their, their families, where they choose to study. So there's a limited uh, uh, scope. And plus, all of these are not cost-free. I mean, you can in, inflict economic uh, pains on your suppliers, but at the same time, you also suffer from perhaps increased costs, delayed of supplies, and, and so forth. But I think the bottom line for Australian government, so they can still uphold the principles, but can do it uh, rather smartly. Uh, instead, the project is unilaterally doing something vis-a-vis or stand up against China, then to mobilize the multilateral forces, operate within multilateral institutions, and for the good of the region as a whole. David Smith, I want to bring it back to you because we're talking trade. Where do you see the trade war between the US and China going? And, and also to the technology war. The US in, in the last couple of months with all this coronavirus stuff going on has actually taken quite a few uh, measures, uh, restrict new restrictions on Huawei for um, the sales of chips. Uh, we had something recently, I think it was this week, about um, the US uh, trying to, or some sort of bill to prevent American uh, institutional investors from uh, investing in companies linked to the PLA. Um, so there's a lot going on with this whole trade war thing. It's not over by any means, despite yeah. that, that phase one deal. Where do you see it going? Yeah, this is interesting, the way that the technological aspect of it has been ramped up. Because in a way, that gets to the longer term core of what this is really all about in terms of the competition between China and the US. A lot of Trump's allies who wanted him to take a hard line on China were actually very worried by the particular approach that he took during the trade war. And Joe Hockey, who was Australia's ambassador to Washington uh, back in February of last year, said that he was worried that Trump would settle for a victory, which was just about the trade deficit and nothing else. And even though the deal that the US reached with Beijing wasn't really a victory for anyone. That's essentially what happened. There was this really single-minded focus from Trump on the trade deficit. That above everything else was what he cared about. He really viewed it almost as theft, that China was selling so much more to the United States than the United States was selling to China. It was this really uh, kind of 18th century or 17th century view of trade. It was very hard for Trump's allies to get him to focus on what they saw as the more important issues, which were around technology and which were around structural issues to do 
with the amount of government intervention in the Chinese economy. Those issues during the trade war were never really touched. And it's really interesting that now with the, the trade war on hold, uh, these technology issues are actually coming back in another context. So I don't know where this is going. I've got some sympathy with the argument that fundamentally the Trump presidency has been pretty good for Xi Jinping because he's dismantled the international structures of cooperation that were being built to try to constrain China. The emphasis for Trump was no longer on constraining China, it was just solely on this issue of the deficit. Now, if Trump loses the presidency in 2020, I don't know if the United States is going to go back to that strategic stand, which is more about placing multilateral constraints on, on China, uh, or I don't know if Trump has now put the United States on a completely different path. It, it's really hard uh, to see exactly where this is going. The questions are coming thick and fast now. Um, I've got one, actually. I'm not sure who to throw it to, really. Uh, the question is about China's digital currency trials. So basically, China is trying to, the central bank is trying to create a Bitcoin-like digital yuan. I don't know if it's the first national government to try this, but I think it's certainly, it may be, or it's taking a leading role. So the question is, um, what do you make of China's push to create a digital currency, like a Bitcoin-style currency? And will the US dollar eventually lose its status as the world's reserve currency? Who wants to chime in on that one? Well, I don't know enough about this uh, digital currency, but I can uh, imagine this follows from the, uh, the logic of uh, renminbi's uh, internationalization over the last uh, few years is to try to develop a kind of a swap arrangement with some trading partners. Uh, because we all know the, uh, the US dollar's the dominance in the world. Today, US economy is about 20% of the global total. But all international trade, the 60% is in, in uh, transactions are in US dollar denominations. So obviously, China wants to mitigate this situation environment. And not the least because of some of the, this fact that US dollar's dominance gave the US government to exercise a sort of extraterritorial control over a number of other things. For instance, just as David mentioned about this technological uh, rivalry or in, you know, competition in technology. Now the US government can pretty much impose on, uh, sanctions on any companies do, doing uh, trade uh, in technology with the Chinese companies in, in the U.S. dollar denomination. So the U.S., you know, in addition to the components of the technology. So obviously for China to get off these, you know, first to promote Chinese renminbi as internationalization to increase the cloud of the, uh, the renminbi, and the second to kind of exclude uh, the U.S. from... Uh, certain types of transactions where China will exercise more control. Just imagine the country who decided to agree to take this uh, uh, digital Chinese currency and where it can be used, can only be used in settled transactions, you know, purchasing Chinese commodities and goods. 
nowhere else unless other countries, third parties also accept the Chinese digital currency as a new uh, settlement. Uh, so that's where, as far as I can, uh, I, I go on this issue. Can I, can I just add to that? Certainly American financial power in the world, it isn't just about the role of the US dollar, though that is very important. And the US dollar has proven to this point very resilient as the world's reserve currency. It is about American control of global banking infrastructure and of the digital infrastructure that makes transactions possible. So exactly what JD was saying, one of the reasons why the United States can so effectively use punitive sanctions against other countries, really looking at Iran at the moment is a major example, uh, is it, it all works, that enforcement of it works through American control of the international banking infrastructure. So it's not just the development of uh, digital currency as an alternative to the US dollar as a reserve currency, it is also a way of actually trying to circumvent American control of that banking infrastructure. Um, David, this is probably also a question for you. Should the broader international community be genuinely concerned at what appears to be an increasingly authoritarian US leadership? Uh, what's your view on that? Yes, I think it should be, because I think that what is happening now is showing an administration that is fundamentally at odds with democratic values. It's an administration fundamentally at odds with what would have traditionally been considered American values. And I mean, the United States has its own history of authoritarianism. If you think about it, the United States didn't have voting rights for everyone until the 1960s. I mean, nor did Australia, absolutely uh, either. So it's, it, there's often a lot of talk uh, when people try to describe this increasing atmosphere of authoritarianism in the United States, uh, saying this must be Russia's doing or making analogies to other countries. No, the US has its own homegrown strand of authoritarianism that has been present for a very long time and is really coming to the forefront now. And I think that that is something that other countries have to recognise, is that the US is, uh, is getting less democratic on some really worrying dimensions. Its electoral integrity is really in danger at the moment. And, uh, you know, when Trump is essentially claiming in advance that the 2020 election will be fraudulent, that mail-in ballots, which will be necessary because of the coronavirus, he's saying that they will be fraudulent. He's essentially, uh, if, he, if he loses, delegitimizing the election in advance, that is a serious threat to electoral democracy. The kinds of things he's been doing in the last 24 hours, uh, that, is a, that is a threat to basic liberal democracy. That is a threat to the basic political freedoms of the American people. So I think that the international community and especially the democratic community should be very worried about this. Because it's the United States, there's only a limited amount that any leader of any other country will, uh, will ever say about it because they don't, want, uh, they don't want backlash from Trump and they don't want retaliation. But I think that there does have to be a recognition 
that this administration is really currently at odds with some very important democratic values. Uh, Minglu Chen, I want to throw this question to you. How has the coronavirus outbreak affected Xi Jinping's status inside the Communist Party here in, in terms of his grip on power? And also, too, um, what's your view on the timing of the Hong Kong national security laws? Is he using this to further cement his standing? I have to answer this question in different stages, right? The first thing that came to my head is actually, I think the coronavirus really um, built a bigger and stronger basis for Xi Jinping of popular support. I think he is seen um, as a, again, a strong leader that within China that was able to lead China out of this major crisis of public health, uh, particularly when other countries and Western developed countries are still struggling. Um, China is already kind of um, quite successful containing the virus. So in that regard, I think Xi Jinping um, still has a very strong status within um, China, but among his colleagues, I'm not sure. It seems like opinions within the Chinese um, um, party state might, might be divided. If you have heard um, Premier Li Keqiang's, um, uh, what he said at a, a press conference last week, I think he really mentioned that China needs the world. Um, China needs the United States. He, the exact words he said was um, the cooperation between China and the United States would benefit both countries equally. Whereas if a trade war or any kind of conflict would lead both in a um, very harmful position. So I think this is, I, to me, this represents a group of opinion within the Chinese party state, people who are softer, who are more willing to, um, to uh, I mean, to, who are less uh, willing to adopt a hawkish position. But there is also voices within the Chinese Communist Party who are more of um, hardliners. So I think the uh, message to take away from this is the party state is not monolithic. It is actually a unity which combines different opinions. And how Xi Jinping's colleagues see him and in the future would support or not support him, really, I think a lot of it depends on how he deals with the aftermath of the coronavirus. Now we start to see how uh, China's earlier blame game with, with, um, with the United States is now really starting to harm its own reputation in the international community and also how it has very profound economic consequences, really how he is going to deal with that, how Xi Jinping is going to deal with mistrust among China's immediate neighbors and um, the uh, wider international community will have something to do with um, his future status within the very top leadership. As to Hong Kong, why did it happen at this particular time? Um, I think a lot of um, 
foreign de uh, policy decisions made by the Chinese state is actually driven by domestic concerns. Again, I was saying uh, currently um, the Chinese economy is not doing particularly well, but um, you, earlier on you mentioned that communist ideology nowadays are less relevant to China's reality. So to a large extent, the ever-present task of the Chinese Communist Party is to prove its, its right to rule, its legitimacy. Now, the legitimacy cannot be based so much on uh, outstanding economic performance. It still has to, to be based on something. Then nationalist sentiment, I think, is the next thing to go to. So in the future, um, I just expect China's um, rhetoric and behavior probably will still not going to match completely. So um, for domestic reasons, China still needs to, uh, the Communist Party and its leaders still needs to prove themselves as the only um, legitimate political force that could lead China over different crises. But I think in reality, you still need to consider how to bring the economy back to track. All right, uh, we're running down the clock here, but we've probably got time for just a few more quick questions. And I'll throw this one to Professor Jingdong Yuan. Will Hong Kong continue to be the bridge between China and the rest of the world? Or if not, if Beijing no longer cares that much about Hong Kong being the bridge, will Beijing need to find a new bridge? I'll throw that one to, uh, to Jingdong. From Chinese government perspective, uh, obviously, despite all the uh, what has happened over the last uh, eight months and more recently you know, over the last week uh, with the new legislation, Beijing would still prefer would, would like Hong Kong to continue to play that role. In, in fact, it is emphasizing that Hong Kong's role is not being affected by this introduction of uh, of new uh, law and which it argues complies with the basic uh, law and just for stability and security reason. But that might uh, not be uh, happen or can be sustained in a number of, of ways. I think uh, to start with, I mean, this law would uh, inject certainly uncertainties and, and worries in uh, multinational corporations and doing business or setting up headquarters in, in Hong Kong because they would perceive uh, this as uh, a different environment for them to operate uh, in. So they might be considering elsewhere to set up their business headquarters in Singapore or you know, other places. So that if effectively undermine this bridge because at the moment, Hong Kong attracts a lot of a financial uh, interactions, uh, a lot of resources, and uh, and the Hong Kong dollar is convertible to foreign currency. Uh, but if other countries start to think Hong Kong or treat Hong Kong as just another big city in China, or not even a big city if you count the population as the criterion, and it's uh, not a, really a big city, and then they might reconsider their uh, options. So that can pretty much cut off this link between the Chinese uh, property or wells into Hong Kong and then convert it and you know, 
basically two-way uh, direction with the outside of the world. So this bridge would be certainly severely undermined, uh, if not completely yep. burned. Uh, what are the alternatives to Hong Kong, Shenzhen, or, or Shanghai? Uh, well, Hong Kong has become the uh, financial center in Asia, in, in the world, one of the top three, because due to a number of unique characteristics which Shenzhen and Shanghai do not have. Uh, so it's not a matter of uh, just your size or your location. You can do this type of thing, you know, to really establish your position, your role in the, in the world, financial world. Uh, you just need to have all the relevant uh, ingredients. And some of these are being perceived, uh, eroded mm. and taken away. All right, um, we're almost out of time. So I'm gonna do a, a Barry Cassidy impersonation on insiders and uh, get a final thought, a takeaway, a brief takeaway from each panelist, because let's bring it back to the big question. Everybody's always talking about US or China, US or China, um, who's gonna come out on top and how's it changing? So I'll, I'll start with you, David Smith. In uh, about 15 years of studying the US, including seven years where I lived there, this last three months has been the worst three months that I've ever seen in the US on all kinds of measures in terms of what's happening to its politics, what's happening to its society, what's happening to its economy. And the last week, and in particular, the last 24 hours has been the worst period that I've ever seen. So, I mean, I can't comment on uh, what direction China is going in at the moment, but the US is definitely going in the wrong direction. Uh, Jing Dong Yuan, any final thought uh, about where these two massive superpowers are heading and their rivalry? Because China has become a strong power, it needs to assert what it considers to be vital interest uh, or its image. Uh, so it's going to enter into a very difficult uh, period of time. So uh, the November elections may subtly uh, influenced uh, the, the ways this relationship will be managed, perhaps not the substance. I think the substance has already, in the US, a bipartisan agreement on the changing nature of the life relationship. But in terms of tactics, approaches, there might be ways that the two, you know, Beijing and, and Washington can at least minimize and manage some of the most uh, acrimonious element of their relationship. And the final word to Minglu Chen, what do people need to know about uh, the view domestically in China, about uh, the narrative in China as this rivalry with the United States continues? Mm, I think um, nationalistic sentiments were continue run high. As long as this is a source of the Communist Party's legitimacy, we still hear um, nationalistic rhetoric from both the state and the people. Right? To a certain extent, I think that will undermine this two great powers relationship. And to a certain extent, I think the Communist Party, when it's making its major decisions, um, will be pressured by um, domestic um, society. So 
I think probably as uh, JD was saying, maybe until after the US election or even maybe until much later when the Chinese economy uh, is starting to improve, I think the relationship will probably start to improve too. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much to our three panelists for this discussion this morning, uh, Dr. David Smith, Dr. Ming Lu Chen, and Associate Professor Jing Dong Yuan. We didn't have nearly enough time to cover um, all the questions that were coming in, uh, but no doubt this topic isn't going away at uh, any time. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas. It's where you'll find the transcript for this podcast and our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with a question or feedback. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss a new episode. Search for Sydney Ideas on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.